Good evening, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And I didn't even have to say shush. That's always the urge of a librarian, no matter what they say. But good evening, and welcome to the Central Library. We are so pleased to have all of you here for a very, very special edition of our Brown Lecture Series. It is my honor this evening to welcome a distinguished author and intellect as our special guest. And I can make a confession. There aren't many perks sometimes of being a librarian. <laughs> but trust me, this is one. So thank you, Professor Ogletree, for being here. Uh, you will hear, of course, more about him, and he is here tonight to create a dialogue and conversation on his new book, The Presumption of Guilt, The Arrest of Henry Louis Gates, Jr. and Race, Class, and Crime in America. Tonight is a gentleman who really has dedicated his life to public service. He is the former state's attorney for Baltimore. He was also the Maryland Secretary of Public Safety and Correctional Services. And before that, he was also the state secretary of juvenile justice. But many of you know him as a person who is dedicated to the city, to education, and to making sure that we all get a chance. So please welcome the Honorable Stuart Sims. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Y'all can do better than that. Come on now. Good evening. I mean, this is Baltimore after all. Come on. Uh, law professor, political strategist, activist, legal counsel, mentor, consultant, and author. These terms and more describe our speaker tonight. Charles Ogletree is professor of law at Harvard Law School and founding and executive director of the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice. He is a graduate of Stanford University whose early interest in the law was prompted by his observations during the trial of Angela Davis, his practice in the public defender's office in the District of Columbia, and private practice in the District of Columbia at the firm of Jessamy, Fort, and Ogletree. His legal instruction and scholarship have been marked by searching inquiries into the intersection of criminal justice, social policy, and constitutional competence and fairness. His text and his discussion on his recent book, The Presumption of Guilt, follows instead with the Brown Lecture Series, which has featured Michelle Alexander in this room, Wes Moore in this room, and the entire focus in the last several months by the Open Society on the challenges to African-American males. Finally, there is no truth to the rumor that in the rear of the book with his photograph, he intentionally wanted a purple tie to love Baltimore and its ravens. Please welcome <laughs> Charles Ogletree. Stuart, thank you uh, so much. Um, I do love Baltimore, uh, and Baltimore loves me back. Uh, and I, I say that because uh, my um, most important uh, connection with Baltimore is that uh, my wife of 35 years, Pam Ogletree, was born right here in Baltimore. Now, 
She's convinced me of a lot of things, except one. When we were uh, deciding to come to Washington for, when I became a public defender, she was trying to convince me that uh, Baltimore was a suburb of Washington, D.C. <laughs> uh, driving around a few times, I realized it was a little bit more than a suburb, a little bit more of a challenge. I'm very happy to, uh, to be here, and let me just say this, because I know that given the, the lateness of the hour, may not have as much time as, as I'd hoped to have with the with schedule. I will be back in Baltimore, uh, thanks to the uh, generosity of uh, Reverend Frank Reed. Uh, I will be at uh, Bethel AME Church here in Baltimore on Sunday, uh, May 22nd at 9.30. Uh, and if, uh, if I miss you tonight, I hope uh, to get a chance to uh, see you then. Uh, let me also thank uh, Ms. Lewis, her, her, her husband, her husband, her son, uh, Reginald Lewis, was a great mentor of many of ours, and, and uh, uh, I, I want to tell the story. I mean, he was in a class uh, of African Americans who came to Harvard in 1965, before starting law school, and Harvard said, we're not admitting any of you, we just want to give you a sense of what the law is about. This is before 68, before affirmative action, and they uh, taught them the aspects of law, uh, and uh, Reggie did very well, uh, and then ultimately he came uh, to Harvard Law School uh, and uh, became incredibly successful. You know all the things that he did. And now you cannot walk on Harvard Law School's campus without entering through what's called the Reginald Lewis International Law Library. His name will forever be sketched in the history of, of Harvard Law School for what he did. When he gave that gift in 1993, it was the largest gift ever given by an alumnus of Harvard Law School. Think about that. A black man was the very first thing, first one to give the greatest gift ever. And then he wrote this great book, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? <laughs> and so, Ms. Lewis, we want to thank you for touching us with your phenomenal son and what he did for us and continues to do for us. Every time someone comes to Harvard, I take them through that library. I said, what is this? I said, look at that brother right there. This is his spot, a permanent indication of how Harvard, if it's going to be successful, has to be a global village, not a local village, not even a national village, but a global village for learning. And we salute you, and Ms. Cooper, and the Lewis family for uh, giving us uh, Reginald Lewis, uh, a great man who did so much in the 20th century and who will forever be remembered for what he's done for all of us. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank uh, Brother Eddie Brown for sponsoring this uh, lecture series. Uh, uh, it gives me a chance to talk a little bit about things that are important to me. I want to thank my surrogate parents. Uh, many people don't know that I met my wife uh, the first week uh, uh, at Stanford. I was from the small little town in Merced, uh, in, in California called Merced, a little uh, very quaint community. And my wife had moved from Baltimore uh, when she was, uh, I think, about 11 years old to the suburb uh, of Compton, California. It's not quite the suburbs, is it? <laughs> For, it was a suburb to me compared to Merced, right? Uh, and then, of course, we met there, and uh, we were nurtured, loved, and encouraged uh, by uh, two people uh, who are still our, our parents, and that's uh, Warren and Jackie Heyman, uh, who were Baltimoreans, who watched over us all those years and continue to watch over us. Warren and Jackie, thank you for making it possible for us to be who we are.
One of my great friends uh, is Clint Bamberger. Clint and I have uh, traveled uh, all over the world, literally uh, in South Africa as well, his wife Catherine. Uh, and uh, we were uh, uh, in South Africa talking, went to a prison, went to other places as well. Uh, and I didn't know that when you said, Amanla, that made the prisoners get a little bit excited. So I'm, I'm, everybody's getting excited when I'm shouting in, in prison. But I did call Clint, who was a little bit older than me, Madiba. He says it means old man. I say it means wise man. There's a difference, right? But I thank him for his friendship. And Gay Jervy uh, is here, I hope. Uh, is Gay here? Uh, there she is. Uh, Gay actually did a, a, a profile of me, I don't know, decades ago now? Right? Uh, she was only eight years old, but it was in... in uh, she did a very good job. She was very good at uh, 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 composition uh, called Tree Time. Uh, she interviewed some people that I e didn't even know, but, but uh, it was really a, a, a way to put what I was trying to do on a national stage, and I thank you for that, uh, Gay. And also, I wanted to just briefly introduce, uh, I've got my own security now, Derek. Uh, Derek has been, he's from a, no, a native Baltimorean, and he also uh, has been in the wire. I've been teaching a course at Harvard Law School on the wire, which is a, a, an extension of this. And I bet I've got a dozen people here right in Baltimore. Who has come or is coming to my class from Baltimore who've come to the class on the wire? Please stand. You'll see some, uh, I'll, I'll mention them again. You, you've got, you've got uh, uh, Neil Franklin, who's a police officer, uh, is with LEAP now. Uh, and you've got Sonia Sohn, uh, who uh, was a uh, detective at Kima Greggs, who's now started Rewired for Change. You've got uh, Reverend uh, Kevin Russell, uh, and also a commander of one of the largest police departments here. Uh, and uh, Donnie Andrews, uh, who uh, was the cr creative force for The Wire because uh, the character Omar was uh, created after Donnie. Donnie was an uh, uh, act-alone gangster. He wasn't in the group. Uh, but he also want to make clear, he wasn't, he wasn't gay. He was married, children, etc. But he did whistle. He carried a sawed-off shotgun. He had a long, all those other things are true. Everything else. But, but uh, he's been, he and his wife, uh, Fran, who's the uh, uh, inspiration for The Corner, also about Baltimore have both been there. And Stuart Sims, uh, along with uh, Judge Andre uh, Davis. Uh, next week we're going to have Chief Justice uh, Robert Bell, a great mentor of mine. Uh, we've had Frank Reed. Uh, we've had some of the prosecutors uh, from uh, Maryland. Uh, uh, we've had a lot of people because the wire is about American life every day. It's not about Baltimore. You can use Baltimore as a frame of reference. Uh, and I, I, I uh, do in the class. Uh, and my wife, who's from Baltimore, never watched The Wire when it was on. Most people didn't watch it, 2002, 2008. But uh, when she saw us teaching the course uh, and I was planning a little segment for each class, then she took my set of The Wire and started watching it. And she was usually in bed by 10, up at 5. Um, and then I kept noticing about one or two, she'd come to the bedroom. I said, where you been? Watching The Wire just makes me mad. I just can't. I can't. I can't. I said, well, turn it off. I can't turn it off because it just makes me mad, right? Uh, but, but, and she watched it, and then she called her father, who the Haymans have met, uh, Phil, who's from Baltimore and raised her in Baltimore. And he's not a TV guy. Uh, and in a week, he watched all five seasons of The Wire, right? Twice, right? Uh, and it, because someone from Baltimore, you notice places. You notice streets. You notice buildings. And so for him, it was a real... 
reminder of what Baltimore was like uh, when they were here uh, decades ago, and it was, it was uh, quite wonderful. Ted Laster, a classmate of mine, is here somewhere, and others as well who uh, uh, I've uh, met. Uh, and um, finally, I just wanted to, to say uh, particularly to people like uh, Donnie Andrews and to Sonia Sohn and Derek, people who are in the wire, what is amazing about it, all those actors, as much as they can do, and making money in, in uh, uh, the theater and in uh, television, they have each created organizations focused on young people, focused on the community, to, in a sense, uh, rebuild Baltimore a second time. And that's what we need to applaud. They're not just taking their checks. They're doing something that makes an enormous amount uh, of difference uh, as well. Uh, and finally, uh, uh, Pat Jessamy and I have been friends for I don't know how long, and she's coming to teach, uh, come to my class as well. Pat, I got you now, right? Right. Uh, and I also wanted to. Uh, one of my students uh, uh, from Harvard is from Baltimore, Justin Wiley, who was the nephew of uh, Reginald Lewis, um, and his mother uh, is here, and he is a remarkable man. And what does he want to do when he finishes Harvard Law School? Come back to Baltimore, right? But what makes it even greater? Uh, I want to introduce Adam. I want you to stand up, Adam. Uh, Adam is a uh, Baltimore police officer here. Stand up, Adam. He also has just accepted an offer to come to Harvard Law School in the fall of 2011. Right? And that's what makes it all work. The connections make an enormous amount of difference. Uh, in the time that I have, I'm going to talk very quickly about of this book, uh, and many of you have it, and I'm going to kind of try to go through it pretty quickly. And again, I said I'll be back on uh, the tw May 22nd. The title is The Presumption of Guilt. Now, you say, wait, Ogletree, in law there is no such thing. That's true. In law, it's called the presumption of innocence. But people are presumed guilty by their race, where they drive, where they shop, uh, where they live, uh, who they are with. And I'm trying to get rid of that presumption uh, in the law uh, because of the problem. And then it's called the arrest of Henry Louis Gates Jr. in race, class, and crime in America. And why is that important? This is as clear in Baltimore as it is in any other city in America. And that is that my conclusion uh, in the little time I have is that in this society, when it comes to the issue of race and racial profiling, race trumps class. What is he talking about? You'll hear in just a minute. Race trumps class. And I'll tell you why I say that. This book is not an indictment of police. It's not a celebration of my colleague and friend, Henry Louis Gates, Jr. Uh, he had a right to say and do what he did. I wouldn't, but he had the right to do that. Uh, and uh, I think it's not a very flattering portrayal of him, but it tells you how the law and sometimes politics and personalities clash. So the first issue is that race trumps clash, class. The second issue uh, is that uh, uh, there is a problem that I think was missing in this whole case, and that is the, the whole idea of gender. My view is that if Skip Gates were a woman or if, uh, detect, uh, Sergeant James Crowley were a woman, this thing would have been resolved very differently. The whole idea of solving the problem rather than creating a conflict is powerful. And I think you saw two men with the testosterone flowing, both pushing to the limits, uh, to who, who's right and who's wrong, and that's part of our societal problem that uh, we need to have more women in positions of power to solve these problems. <laughs> right, grandmother? Right. Uh, and, and you'll you'll see how that how that works uh, as we go through. So uh, many of you, how many of you heard about Gates' arrest of July 16, 2009? Okay. 
So and this is what you didn't hear. That's why I wrote the book. Uh, and I wrote the book because I would have been writing anyway uh, on issues of race and justice. I, that's my life. This is my seventh book, and I've got two or three more uh, in the next uh, 18 months that are coming out. Uh, but it's important. I know you haven't bought them all. That's, that's your problem, not mine. I've written them, right? And they're still available, right? Uh, and, and so, but the whole idea is that sometimes you have to talk about these things and explain these things to give them some context, and that's what I did. Uh, and this is a case that the difference between what was reported uh, on the day that it happened, the difference of what, what actually happened. Uh, Professor Gates uh, is, is a friend of mine. We've been friends for about two decades. Uh, we disagree on almost everything, uh, but, but we're friends. That's, that, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and uh, Sergeant James Crowley uh, is, is Af a white police officer, born in Cambridge, went to the same high school as my children, Cambridge Ridge and Latin High School, uh, has been a police officer for most of his life, like his father and his brother. Uh, he worked for the Harvard University Police, but at night, so he never saw Gates. He worked for the Brandeis University Police, and he was in his 11th year in the police force in Cambridge uh, when this happened. And in fact, I talked to uh, George Greenwich Sr., an African-American former coach uh, at the high school, and he says he would swear by uh, 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 Sergeant Crowley, a good guy, reliable, believable, etc. So this is not about calling a cop racist. Uh, it's really about let's investigate what happened and see what happens and see whether we can uh, have it uh, resolved in some way. And the, the third point in the book is that the real hero in this book is the woman who is wrongly labeled as the nosy racial profiling woman. When you hear what I have to say and you see what she actually said on July 16th, she's not a villain, she's a hero. Because she had the foresight to think through what was happening and not to presume anyone was guilty based on what she saw. So what happens? On July 16th is a Thursday, uh, Professor Gates had returned the day before on Wednesday from China. He was there, you may remember his series uh, uh, and uh, uh, February 2010, where he had gone to the home of Yo-Yo Ma. And on Thursday morning, he flew from New York uh, back to, uh, to Boston. He was picked up in his limousine, driven to his house. The driver took two pieces of luggage out of his uh, trunk of uh, the limousine, put it on Professor Gates' porch, took, got his chip, and Gates was then going to open his door, couldn't open it. He tried again, couldn't open it. He tried to push it, couldn't open it. Gates uh, is uh, 59 years old, weighs about 158 pounds. Uh, he's been uh, disabled since birth uh, with polio, and if you've ever seen him, he uses a cane and walks, uh, and his left uh, leg is longer than his right leg. He has different shoes as well. So he's been disabled uh, all of his life, and certainly all of his adult life. Uh, a small but very proud man. Uh, and he can't get the door open. The driver then tries to help him, and they both push, 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 get the door open. And Gates goes inside, turns his alarm off, because it would go off because he's been out of the, uh, out of the country. Uh, and then he picks up his cell phone, I mean his portable house phone. He calls the Harvard real estate that owns his single-family house. Talks to Amanda Moore, which people didn't know, we know, and said, Amanda, my door is broken. I had to force my way in. I do not want to sleep in this house tonight. Can you get someone over to repair it right away? This is about 12.30 uh, during the day. Let me just say this, the fourth point. The entire incident from the time Gates arrives at his house until he's arrested, the entire incident took how long? Six minutes. Six minutes. I've been talking for 12. Right? Six minutes. Think of how long all this happened, which tells you somebody wasn't making all the right judgments that should be making going forward. And so uh, Gates goes in the house, calls the uh, Amanda Moore, 
and says, uh, get someone over here. At the same time, Sergeant Crowley is near the neighborhood and gets a call that someone has called and said someone's breaking in 17 Ware Street, right? Fine, that's what a person does. And so Crowley comes uh, there uh, to, to Gates Porch. Now, I want to talk about the call. What was the call that caused Sergeant Crowley uh, to go to Gates' house? It becomes very instructive, and there are police officers here who will appreciate this. This is what happens. So, uh, and we get the transcript, and, and when you call 911, you, you're recorded automatically, right? And when you say, I'm not telling you my name, they know who you are. They, they know where you're calling from. You can't disguise it. It's known, right? So there's no, even though you can try to be secret, you can't be. And so here's the actual transcript, the actual transcript. Uh, and the dispatcher says, tell me uh, exactly what happened. A man, a Miss uh, Whalen, uh, who called, says this, um, I don't know what's happening. I, I, I just have an elder woman uh, standing here, and she had noticed two gentlemen trying to get in the house at that number, 17 Well Street. And they looked, uh, they kind of had to barge in, and they broke the screen door, and they finally got in. And when I had looked, I went further, closer to the house, a little further, after the gentlemen were already in the house, I noticed two suitcases. Uh, so I'm not sh- here's her key words. So I'm not sure if these are two individuals who work there or who live there. Now, why is that important? She has made no presumption about a crime. She's describing what she saw. I don't know if they work there or actually live there. That's what she said, right? And here's what the dispatcher says. The dispatcher says, uh, black or Hispanic, are they still in the house? Uh, They're still in the house, I believe. Uh, Are they white, black, or Hispanic? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Dispatcher's trying to get a sense who's involved, you're right, trying to get a description, uh, to tell the officer on the scene, here's what we have. Are they white, black, or Hispanic? Here's her answer to the dispatcher, recorded. She says, well, there were two uh, larger men. One looked kind of Hispanic, but I'm not really sure. And the other one entered, and I, I didn't see what he looked like at all. One Hispanic, I didn't see what he looked like at all. That's her entire description. Remember, I don't know if they work there or live there. One Hispanic, the other one I didn't see at all. That's her description. And so Gates is talking on the phone, not knowing this is going on. Sergeant Crowley comes to his uh, door. Gates doesn't know who is there. He sees someone in the shadows on his porch. And he says to Amanda Moore, wow, you got the security guy here to fix my door quick. She said, no, Professor Gates, it'll take 10 more minutes. He walks over to the door. And what does he see? A police officer with a uniform, gun, and a badge. And then the officer says to Gates like this uh, with his hand, come outside, come outside. I want you to come outside right now. That's what he says. Not there's a burglary in progress. Who are you? I want you to come outside. And Gates says on the, on the inside of his house, no, I will not. That's recording the officer's report. He said, I want you to come outside. He said, I live here. This is my house. He says, well, show me some identification. And Gates turns around to walk to a table to pick up his wallet. And the officer came in right behind him. He didn't even know it. And he picks up his wallet to turn around, and there's the officer. And what the officer did is fine, because the officer gets a report, maybe there's a break in the air. So this is not anti-police. He's following to see what's happening. And then Gates does this. Gates opens his wallet and shows him what? Shows him two forms of identification. Now, if you know Gates, you know how this worked. The first thing he showed him was his Harvard ID, right? Harvard University, Henry Louis Gates, Jr., university officer, Cambridge, Massachusetts, right, 2009, right? And then he showed him his driver's license. You know, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, uh, Henry Louis Gates, Jr., 17 Ware Street, Cambridge, Massachusetts. So there's no doubt, there's no question, 
when the officer came in his house, Gates showed him two forms of identification saying, I live here, this is my house, uh, and the so officer knew that. No doubt about it. No doubt about it, right? Uh, and then the officer just sort of looked at Gates. And here's what Gates said. Uh, Gates said, among other things, if you don't believe me, call the chief. Who's the chief? The chief is Bud Riley of the Harvard University Police. Because Gates loves police. They protect his car, protect his house. They don't let all those burglars break in. He loves police. And he says, call the chief, right? And then uh, uh, Sergeant Crowley continues to look at his ID. And, and Gates says this. Do you know who I am? Do you know who you were messing with? He said that. And Crowley just kept looking at it. And he says, are you doing this because I'm black and you're a white police officer? You see the escalation? And then Gates said the most progressive thing I've ever had him, heard him say about race in his life. He said, this is what happens to a black man in America. Have you heard Skip of that? <laughs> Nothing close, right? Right? So you can imagine, he's, he's right in the officer's face saying all these things, all of them. Everything he said is protected. Every single word, you may not like it, every single word is protected by the Fifth Amendment, uh, uh, the First Amendment. Why is it protected? Where does this happen? In Gates' house. He has not committed a crime. He's committed a, a, uh, a uh, urban crime called in contempt of cop. You can't charge anybody with that, right? Right? But he has not committed a crime, right? And it's a house where, you know, in order to, it's not like there's upstairs and downstairs and someone, no one can hear the conversation in the house between Gates and Sergeant Crowley. It's two men going at it, right? And it's interesting. I asked Gates, this goes on later, I asked him later on, well, describe Crowley. Uh, he said, oh, man, he was uh, 6'8", 385 pounds, right? <laughs> Uh, that's in his mind, because Gates is a small guy. I can imagine him looking up, do you know who I am, right? <laughs> and why this is important when I talk about uh, race Trump's class, class is that I've been teaching at Harvard Law School for over 25 years, and I teach students criminal law. And the first thing I always tell them, I always say, never, ever, 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 never, ever tell a police officer that you're going to file a complaint. Don't do that. And never ask a police officer, when you confront a police officer, that you want their name and their badge number. Why? If you're smart, it's on his or her chest. It's right there. Right? Right? It's right there. You can see it, right? Be smart, and you don't have this problem. Obviously, Gates didn't take my class, right? That's all, but, so he did, didn't do that, right? And it escalates. It escalates, obviously. Uh, and uh, it escalates. And here, what's interesting is Crowley sort of... Uh, I'm, he, he, we don't know what he's thinking because he doesn't say. But can you imagine he said, who is this guy? Why is he acting this way? Who does he think he is, right? And Crowley, uh, and, and then ultimately Crowley leaves the house. But, but I want to tell you, show you what Crowley wrote in his police report. That is, what is a lawyer to do? Go back for the evidence. And here's what he wrote uh, about what happened uh, on that uh, day with Gates. Uh, he uh, comes in the house, I've told you that, comes to, the, comes to the door, and here's what Crowley writes in his police report. The police report in Massachusetts has to be filed within 24 hours of the arrest. So he files it, you know, right after. And what it, what's there, the ink is dry. You can't change it. You don't have three days or a week to make up. So he writes what he wants to justify the arrest. And here's what he writes. He says, um, 
I was told that the caller was already outside. That's Lucia Whalen, correct? As I was getting this information, I climbed the porch stairs toward the front door, correct? As I reached the door, a female voice called uh, out to me, correct? I turned and looked in the direction of the voice and observed a white female, later identified as Whalen, correct? Whalen, who was standing on the sidewalk in front of the residence, held a wireless telephone, correct, in her hand and told me it was that she who called, correct? She went on to tell me that she observed what appeared to be two black males with backpacks on the porch. She never said that, ever. And what makes this so ironic is that it's not whether or not you believe Crowley. She is uh, anonymous. No one knows who she is. But then when this report comes out saying this woman called the police and said two black men with backpacks, she had to come out with her lawyer the next day. I never said that. She didn't have the 9-11 tape. She says, I, I'm sure, go listen to the tape. I never said two black men with backpacks. I described a Hispanic. So that's the first mistake in the report. You begin to see what's happening. And what about the discussion? If you go on this report, then he says, um, when Gates asked a third time for my name, now Gates is a pretty smart guy, right? If you give him your name and badge number the first time, he won't ask for it five times. But he wrote in the report, Gates, when Gates asked a, a third time for my name, I explained to him that I had provided it at his request two separate times. Gates continued to yell at me. True, I'm sure he did right? I told Gates that I was leaving his residence and that if he had any other questions regarding the matter, I would speak with him outside of the residence. That's in his report, right? Right? And what does he do? He, he, Gates is talking to him and he leaves, right? Goes outside. And Gates hobbles right behind him, right? Continue their argument. And they, they're outside and then ultimately uh, he's saying Gates is still talking loud and he sees other police officers other citizens, and Gates is engaging in crime of disorderly conduct, right? Because he's in a public place making a scene, in his view, right? Uh, and that's what he writes in his report. And it's, it's, it's very interesting because he then arrests Gates for disorderly conduct. And this statute is probably common to, Pat, Patricia would know this from other jurisdictions, it's called the uh, Crimes Against Chastity, uh, Morality, Decency, and Good Order. And uh, right, you've had these before, right? Right. Uh, and who does it apply to? It applies to common night walkers, common street walkers, both male and female, common railers and brawlers, persons who with offensive and disorderly acts or language accost or annoy persons of the opposite sex, lewd, wanton, and lascivious uh, uh, persons in speech or behavior, idle and disorderly persons, disturbers of the peace, keepers of noisy and disorderly houses, and persons guilty of indecent exposure. Right? It's a very broad statute, which means almost anybody doing anything in public, it's a, you can charge them, right? And so that's what happened, and so Gates uh, is arrested under that statute. Uh, and uh, Gates is a very smart guy. He's uh, handcuffed in the back, which is standard procedure, and he tells him, I can't walk, I need my cane. An officer takes the handcuffs off the back, puts him in front, right, goes to the police car, and Gates' last smart movement is that you can then, he sees the police car window, he didn't know it doesn't have any locks on there, how would I know there's no handles? Have I been in a police car? Yes, I have, right? And so, but he does, he takes his finger and pushes the button to roll the window down, right, and he shouts out to his secretary, Joanne, Joanne, call tree, that's me, right? <laughs> Now, that's important because what makes this so amazing, Gates, unlike 99% of people who are in that situation, was able to call a lawyer, get a lawyer, 
and get his charges dismissed within a number of days. Because I, I told him, I said, look, uh, uh, Skip, I don't think this charge is uh, legitimate. I want to take a closer look at it. I want to examine it, uh, and we'll find out. And, and I said, I just have to ask you to do one thing, and lawyers know this. Don't make any statements between now and when we get the charges dismissed, because the charges could be very different in three or four days. And I say this because none of you, except Professor Gates, me, and the police, no one knew he was arrested on July 16th and Thursday. You didn't know it on Friday. You didn't know it on Saturday. You didn't know it on Sunday. You didn't know it on Monday when we got the charges dismissed. And then it became a story. And on Tuesday, you see this photograph of him that dates back to the arrest, uh, because the arrest photograph was public, but no one had paid attention to it, even though it's out there. No one paid attention to it until after the charges were dismissed. And I've, I'm thinking that we're all set. Uh, and, and the charges are dismissed because the talking to the prosecutor uh, and the ch uh, commissioner of police and the uh, city manager, they all agree that they're going to dismiss the charges in the interest of justice, let it, let it go, right, and, and, and apologize to Professor Gates. Uh, and took no action against uh, Sergeant Crowley because his view has been and is it was a legitimate arrest. He's outside, he's yelling, and he violates the statute, right? That's his argument. And so everything's fine. And then Gates, um, uh, I think it's all done. I get a call Tuesday from the New York Times. And I said, Professor Ogletree, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, we just want to know, do you have any comments on the statement we got from your client, Henry Louis Gates Jr. today? <laughs> I said, hold on, click. <laughs> skip, skip, skip. Look, I've got a call from the New York Times. Did you call the New York Times today to tell them about your arrest and talking about rogue cops? Tree, 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 no, 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 I just gave them background information. <laughs> so we were assuming that it's done and we're, we're in good shape. Uh, and I explained the legal uh, complexities and that the rest of the case has been dismissed and we're moving forward. And then I'm reading uh, my, the Daily Beast the next day, and what do I see? I see a story titled, uh, uh, The Arrest of My F uh, Father, the Jailbird, and it's written by Liza Gates, Professor Gates' daughter. And I'm reading, I said, Skip, did you give your daughter an interview about your arrest? No, 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 Tree, we were just talking. Skip, I'm reading. Question, answer, question, answer. Okay, I got it, I got it. We quashed that, and everything's done. Until that night. Until that night, there is a phenomenal 59-minute press conference with my former student, uh, President Barack Obama. And he gives a great press conference about health care, right, and about the public option, and about the 60 votes. There were 60 Democrats in the Senate in the July 2009, um, and, and then at the end of 59 minutes, the last question from a reporter was, uh, Mr. President, do you have any comment on the arrest of Henry Louis Gates, Jr.? And President Obama said, well, uh, <laughs> Professor Gates is my friend, number one. Number two, uh, I, I don't know all the facts. Then you shut up. <laughs> that is not in the book. I put it in there, Pam took it out. Right? She said, Charles, you can't tell. But the third and fourth point are important. The third point is this. This is where I say in the book, the, on that moment when he gave that press conference, that conversation blackened President Barack Obama. Now, what do I mean by that? The third thing he said was, the Cambridge police acted stupidly. So you're not, that's not all he said, but that's all the public heard. He said, the Cambridge police acted stupidly when you arrest a man in his own house after he's given you identification. But all the public heard was the Cambridge police acted stupidly. And at that moment, the criticism was incredible because he became the black president 
helping his black friend against a hard-working class white police officer, right? And the fourth thing he said, blacken him as well, and not necessarily in a negative way. The fourth thing he said, Lynn, Lynn Sweet, you should know that there is a history of racial profiling of black and Latino men in America. The president said that. And as a state senator, I supported a bill to deal with racial profiling in uh, Illinois because we know it's a persistent problem, the disproportionate number. So he's talking about this. I'm getting emails and texts, man, did you hear the president? He, he's, he's one of us. Yeah, he is, right? <laughs> and so there was a reinforcement among blacks that he gets it, and there is a reaction that Glenn Beck said President Obama is a racist. He doesn't like white people, right? And, and that you could, if you go back to July 2009, you start to see how things are become, race becomes a, a burden on him uh, from that point forward. And then, of course, the president wisely says, I've got to get this off the front page and get health care back on. What does he do? He calls for the beer summit, right? <laughs> and those of you who have the book, you, you'll see two pages. And I, I, I love Professor Gates. And, and the first picture, you see the first picture, you say, True, you don't have me getting arrested. I said, well, you did get arrested, man. I'm the, yeah, you're in there, right? So that, that's, uh, but the second page is what I call the kumbaya moment uh, of 2009. Two white guys, two white, black guys uh, in the Rose Garden of the White House drinking a beer. What could be more Americana than that, right? But if you look really closely, is that you'll see that there are several beer mugs and only one is really full. And that's the beer mug of... Vice President uh, Joe Biden. <laughs> What's the backstory? I'm telling you this. This is not in the book. You said, why do you put that picture in there? Because Obama was, uh, Crowley said, Gates is your friend. I don't know if I should just have a session with the two of you because it doesn't seem fair. So they, they said, you can bring other police officers. So there was this gathering of Gates' group, me, and Crowley's group, uh, his uh, friends and uh, police officers, and then the president said, let's go out and have the beer. And he said, Joe, come with us. He had Joe Biden come out. And you see the president and Biden took their coats off, you know, sleeves rolled up. It looks very comfortable. But the, the irony of it is that uh, Joe Biden doesn't drink at all, not even non-alcoholic beer. But the moment this picture was taken, right, that's the, the idea. It's over. See, we're having a good time. Pretzels, peanuts, beer, right? The moment the press leaves to get in their, their classic shot, the president then says, okay, Joe, go back inside and entertain Ogletree and the rest of us. Can you imagine what might have happened if Joe Biden had been there with Crowley and Gates talking about this case? You think World War III is a possibility? Think of that conversation. So it was, it was wise, get him for the photo, get him out of the conversation, right? Uh, and so the whole idea was to take this off of the front page, and the only way you take it off is not having Biden say anything about it uh, that would make it even further. The rest of the book is about a whole series of events involving race and class. I have a whole chapter on Harvard. Harvard is not free or immune from this, about the treatment of black men at Harvard uh, over time. People have been falsely accused of things they didn't do, including faculty and students and, and alumni. Uh, I have a chapter about my, one of my students, Robert Wilkins, who's now on the federal bench, stopped right here in Maryland, uh, 1992, coming from a funeral, when the police said they wanted to search his trunk uh, for drugs because he had a rental car and on Highway 68, I think it is, right? Western Maryland, I think it is, right? Uh, and, and Robert, I love him to death, one of my former students, also a public Twitter time, he said, you can't do that. United States versus Sharp says, and I said, you can't tell a police officer about, <laughs> you, you, you can't give a citation, Robert, about the law. That, that, that won't, that's a non-starter, right? 
and I want your name. He did say that. And the officer said, I read it in the report, right? I'm not going to give you my name. He said, I'll read the report. And then he filed a lawsuit and won uh, for being uh, stopped and for profiling of African-American Latinos in the early 1990s. He was compensated. There was a consent decree, et cetera. That's in here. The Rodney King case, as a reminder of the problems, is in here. That the Rodney King shooting, if you read it carefully, is not really, people weren't angry just because the officers were acquitted in Rodney King. There was a black teenager by the name of Latasha Harlins who was killed, and Mayor Tom Bradley said, don't riot, calm down, let's wait and see what happens with Rodney King. And the rebellion was about not hating police. Uh, it was a, the African Americans and others who re- rebelled in Los Angeles targeted Korean grocery stores because this African-American girl had been killed in a Korean grocery store. And the judge had given the woman, after she was convicted of manslaughter, probation and no time in jail. So people were angry. And it, it talks about all that. And, and I put in that book, it's uh, beyond the Rodney King story, and, 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 uh, an investigation of police conduct in minority communities, all these ideas of how we can avoid racial profiling, police, community policing, all the things we need to do. It was a great book. None of you bought it. Nobody bought it. I know, because I got all the remainders. You didn't buy it, right? <laughs> I'm not mad at you, but what I wrote then is in this one, too. <laughs> Business, right? But the whole idea, the point is this now in here is that the, the, the idea is to think about that. But here's the most amazing thing when I talk about race trumps class. After Gates' arrest, I received letters, emails, text messages, fax, phone calls uh, from people around the country saying this happened to my mother, aunt, cousin, sister, brother, black, white, Young, old, uh, Republican, uh, Democrat, uh, conservative, liberal, every, every, every group of, you can imagine, wrote me or sent me something. <clears throat> to my shock and dismay, the group that wrote me the most often about that were who? Black professional men saying, this happened to me. Right? And I, went, I started looking at that. I thought about Thurgood Marshall, what happened to him, uh, Vernon Jordan, uh, Spike Lee, our attorney general, Eric Holder. Uh, Stuart Sims. Uh, the list is amazing when you go when you read through it. The chapter is called "100 Ways of Looking at a Black Man." It tells you how many different ways this has happened. And the final thing is this: uh, among those hundred stories, there's a hundred. There's actually a hundred uh, vignettes to let you know it happens to everybody. And my point is that race trumps class. You can't work your way out of being identified by race. No matter how high, it didn't help the president, it didn't help Professor Gates, didn't help uh, Attorney General when he was in college, it didn't help Stuart Sims. It's, race still matters in a very powerful way. And, and among the stories there are, are two that I've just mentioned as I end. One is about uh, my dear friend Johnny Cochran. Everybody knows Johnny Cochran, his representation of everybody from uh, Geronimo Pratt to P. Diddy to Michael Jackson to O.J., uh, all the chokehold cases. We know him as a great criminal defense lawyer and a great uh, civil rights lawyer. But people forget Johnny Cochran was a prosecutor before he was a defense lawyer, civil rights lawyer. He was in the same office with Lawrence Ito, the judge in the Simpson case, uh, and Gil Garcetti, the prosecutor in the Simpson case, the head of the prosecution office. He was in that office. And in 1980, I say Johnny Cochran made a mistake, and he wrote about this in his own book. He made a mistake on two points. First, Johnny Cochran, in the 1980s, he bought a Rolls Royce. All right, that's half the mistake. But what really made it bad, he drove it on the L.A. freeways. (laughs) And so Johnny tells the story of being pulled over by police and a gun pulled on him, Uh, and not for speeding, not for any traffic violation. And Johnny pulled out his ID because his two kids were in the back and said, Johnny, he says, this is my car, here's my driver's license, and here's my badge, I'm a DA. 
And what did the police say? Oh, Mr. Cochran, we didn't know it was you. Right? I mean, they were thinking that black man, 1980s, Rolls Royce, what is this about? Right? And, and what, what, what we don't want, and I say this very clear in the book, we don't want a, except, a Johnny Cochran exception either. Because it's okay for Johnny to drive a Rolls Royce, but none of you can. Right? And that's why race trumps class. We can't create a class exception so some of us can drive a car or shop or live in a neighborhood. We have to end this, uh, this uh, sense of race, racism. Another uh, final one, I think it was a, uh, may have been a classmate or a year earlier than Stuart Sims. And I, I'll end here. I'm, I'm way over. Uh, and that is that um, uh, Prince Chambliss uh, is from Alabama. Uh, he's now a partner in a major law firm, the largest law firm in Memphis, Tennessee. And he wrote me after this all happened. Last year, before the book was finished, he wrote me. He said, I want to tell you about mine. It doesn't involve the police. He says, one Saturday, I'm in the suburbs. I can afford to live in the nicest part of Memphis. And I'm out with my khakis on and a faded shirt. And I'm out cutting my grass. An elderly white woman drives by and sees me. And she says, hey, hey, boy, how much you try, charge to cut the grass? And then uh, Prince had what we call a car rowing moment. He said to the woman, he said, uh, ma'am, I don't charge anything to cut the grass, but I do get to sleep with the woman in the house. She hit the gas and took off as fast as she could, right? He didn't say, do you know who I am? Do you know who you're messing with, right? The only problem with that, I'm glad he wrote it, because she probably says, damn, I have to give him some sex just to cut my grass? It, it didn't solve the problem. There's no discussion. And the book is about let's have the discussion. Let's find a way. And the book is really not just for you. It's for those folks who are wondering, how does this system happen? Uh, and it puts police in an awkward position. They can't do what they, they want to do and need to do. Uh, it puts, uh, has people in the communities like this run when the police come. And whether or not they've done anything, they run. And the police see them running, and that becomes, oh, what are they running for? What have they done? We have to have that difficult discussion about race to try to uh, fix it in some way that makes sense. And I think that is the... The, the, the challenge of this book. Uh, it's the presumption of guilt, and I want you to get rid of the presumption and get back to the presumption of innocence. That's what I'm hoping and praying for. This book is readable. Even when you buy it, don't keep it. There are some people who won't have it, but who need it to get a sense that, why me? He says, not just you. It's the president. It's this guy from Harvard. It's, it's everybody. And let me just finish with this. I'm sorry. The last point, because so, we're not going to have time for Q&A. So here's what could Crowley have done? My, my view is that there's four things he could have done on July 16th. I'll just list these. Think about these. The first thing he could have done, if he thought Gates was a burglar, if he did, arrest him. Let's sort it out later, right? If you think he's committed a crime, arrest him. Fine, right? What he could have done, he said, if he thought maybe Gates wasn't a burglar, but somebody in his house was committing a burglary, he could have detained him, right, and searched the house, Right? To see if there really are burglars in there. The third thing he could have done, Gates said, if you don't believe me, call the chief. He called the Cambridge police, but he didn't call Chief Riley. If he called Chief Bud Riley, the police chief of the Cambridge police, the Harvard police, uh, he said, yeah, Sergeant Crowley, there's a guy here, uh, says his name is Henry Louis Gates Jr. Do you know him? Yeah, arrogant guy, talks a lot, you know, you know, talks a lot. Yeah, yeah, I know Skip. Yeah, that's him, right? He could have verified who he was. Or or he could have said, after, even with the argument with Gates and seeing the ID, saying, sorry, Mr. Gates, we had a report of a burglary. That's why I'm here. Uh, apparently there's no burglary. 
Sorry for disturbing you. Have a good day. If you uh, want further information, here's my card. You can call me. You can call the police department. Go, right? All those things could have been done. None were done because the attitude was they both, uh, Crowley was offended by Gates. Uh, and Crowley tells me that that very night after Gates was arrested, he goes home, goes up to his computer, and decides, oh, let me Google this guy, see who he is. And he Googles Gates, and he gets all this material at about 11.30, and he says, oh, shucks. <laughs> he really didn't know. He did not. That's true. He didn't know who he was, right? But that, that tells you how this happened. He then gave Gates the handcuffs used to arrest him. They got together after this. Uh, he's not happy with Gates. You would understand why, because uh, he gave Gates the uh, handcuffs this past spring, and Gates sent the handcuffs to the Smithsonian Museum. <laughs> now, I'm not going to mention uh, Stuart Sims or Kurt Schmoke by name, but uh, friends of mine said, Tree, what's your boy doing? He's no martyr. He's not Gandhi. He's not King. What the world does he think we want to come to see his handcuffs at the Smithsonian Museum in Washington? They're there if you want to see them. Get rid of the presumption of guilt. Thank you. Please join me in thanking Professor Charles Overture.